Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Dr. Annette Snap searches for Fort Shackelford, built in 1855. They feel like the only solution is to have the Native Americans, the Seminoles, agree to move out west or incite violence from the, the Seminoles so that they can have a reason to exterminate them. We'll discuss salvaging shipwrecks in the Florida Keys. This is one of those interestingly peculiar uh, Florida professions that uh, really hit its uh, stride in the mid-19th century during the, the golden age of, of sail. And we'll talk about Puerto Rican immigration. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Yo, yo, Archaeologists are searching for Fort Shackelford, which was constructed in 1855 during the Seminole Indian Wars. Many Florida towns were built around Seminole War forts, and some, such as Fort Pierce, Fort Lauderdale, and Fort Myers, still retain their fort names. The U.S. Army constructed forts about a day's walk apart so the soldiers could travel from one fort to another during the day and have protection at night. Dr. Annette Snap is operations manager of the Atatiki Seminole Indian Museum and is leading the effort to locate Fort Shackelford. As Dr. Snap explains, the Seminole Wars were a series of three conflicts. The first began with Andrew Jackson's invasion of Florida in 1816. At that time... You know, he is very interested in Florida and in wresting that from Spain and also in the movement of the Indians uh, away from the white settlers. The prevailing thought at the time was that the white people and the indigenous people could not live together peacefully. And in his mind, the way to do that was to have the Indians agree to move elsewhere. And that was kind of the idea behind the 1830. Indian Removal Act. Uh, and so at that time, uh, it, there is this sense that everybody will agree to do this, but of course it leads to the Trail of, of Tears. Uh, the, the Cherokees and other Indians are forced to walk um, out west to Oklahoma and other areas out west with Andrew Jackson uh, turning his eyes on Florida and the federal government turning their eyes on Florida. Uh, it leads to the Second Seminole War. They've been pushed sort of into the center of the state. There's a reservation there, but tensions rise uh, between the Seminoles and the white settlers. The Seminoles are engaging in guerrilla warfare and they're attacking and ambushing uh, the white settlers, which of course is something which is very unnerving. It might only happen uh, once a year, but it's enough to be very, very scary uh, for those uh, early pioneers. Um, and uh, following that, following the Second Seminole War, they're pushed even farther south. So they're in the southwest Florida reservation. Uh, and 
by 1850, you have the um, Swamp Act, which allows the federal government to give lands, swamp lands, uh, to the states, which they can turn around and sell and raise funds by selling it to settlers who agree to drain the land and settle them. You know, the idea is to bring more and more people into uh, Florida, but now they've created a, a huge conflict. They're asking people to go into this area where the Seminole are living, um, and of course, more and more settlers are moving in, and it's, you know, again, tensions are rising, and the Seminoles are, of course, unhappy about it. Not only are they retaliating locally, but they're also going throughout the state. So no part of the state, even though uh, South Florida may be where it's playing out on the reservation, they are taking their guerrilla warfare everywhere throughout the state. Uh, and again, it might only happen once a year, twice a year, three times a year, uh, but it's un unnerving. They're killing people. Uh, it's frightening. It's scary. And the federal government sees that they feel like the only solution is to have the Native Americans, the Seminoles, agree to move out west or incite violence from the, the Seminoles so that they can have a reason to exterminate them. Fort Shackelford was built on Seminole reservation land in 1855 so the U.S. government could monitor Seminole activities more closely. Fort Shackelford was destroyed, so Dr. Snap's search for its exact location begins with written records. There are military records that say that Fort Shackelford was built and when it was built and, and who built it. So we have a really good idea of the time period, of when they're there. Um, we've got at least a general idea of where they're located. And it's this later marker that's put on the landscape in 1943 that, is, uh, that gives us more of a target as an archaeologist or a group of archaeologists to investigate you know, where we think Fort Shackelford was located. The four historic markers identifying the corners of Fort Shackelford were placed almost a century later, so their accuracy is not assured. Further, only one of the markers remains today, and it does not specify which corner it represents. Still, the marker provided Dr. Snap with a starting place. Today there's only one, and we don't know which one is left, and we think that probably the others were removed during, uh, you know, a lot of that area was used for agriculture, and so in order to prepare the land, that they were probably just removed. Again, the question is which which one is left there, but it still gives us a pretty good target. Although Fort Shackelford was burned to the ground not long after it was built, it continued to show up on maps for many years. It does. It's a really unusual sort of memory marker that uh, the, the map makers just keep including Fort Shackelford 40 years after it's gone. In 2009, Dr. Snap brought a group of archaeology students onto the Seminole Reservation at Big Cypress, Starting with the one remaining marker, they tried to find evidence of Fort Shackelford on the site. Well, this was really um, a, a joint venture between the Tribal Historic Preservation Office, which has a lot of archaeologists on it, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Um, so we collaborated on that, and that's how we uh, determined that there would be a location um, acceptable to the Seminoles and the Tribal Historic Preservation Office on reservation lands to investigate. Uh, and uh, as a day-to-day -day experience, it was really unusual in that it, it afforded the students an opportunity to be immersed uh, for 
two 10-day sessions where they were literally out there all day and spending the evenings there on the reservation. It is, if you haven't been out there, it is at the edge of the Everglades and at the edge of Big Cypress Swamp, and it is a very swampy environment, and it's uh, kind of like entering um, a completely different domain if you're not familiar with it, uh, one that includes alligators um, and snakes and tall grasses and marshy areas. And the the students had, um, it, for some of them, uh, I think it was the first opportunity to also see the reservation and become familiar with a living indigenous group that is in their backyard and to know that we share this area together. After completing her historical research, finding the lone historic marker claiming to be on the site of Fort Shackelford, and bringing a team of students to the location for an archaeology field school, Dr. Snap employed a variety of techniques to establish the exact location of the fort. Prior to starting the actual field school, some remote sensing was undertaken. So the Tribal Historic Preservation Office actually uh, conducted ground-penetrating radar, and that is using radar that is um, sent down into the ground and it bounces back up and you record that information and what you hope to gain from that data is potential features that you can go back and investigate later. So if there is an object um, below the surface that you can't see, it's gonna bounce off, that radar will bounce off of it and you'll be able to get some kind of signature with the ground penetrating radar. Um, secondarily, metal detecting was undertaken also, and that um, helped, um, we believed, uh, give us a target for where the, the site, the, the fort might be located. During their field school, Dr. Snap's students made some tantalizing discoveries on the likely site of Fort Shackelford. A lot of what we found were metal fragments. Um, we did find some lead shot. Um, I think we found four lead shot, and that's in total, including our metal detecting survey. We found some pieces of ceramics, uh, and we found those in sort of disturbed areas that we think might date to Seminole uh, camps, because we know the area was used by the Seminoles as hunting camps uh, after the Third Seminole War. Um, we found cut nails. Um, so though we found two cut nails, and those were probably the two most distinctive things. They date to the right time period, 1835 to 1850s. Um, so we felt confident about that. But one unusual item that we found uh, was this. Um, it looks like a Navy button. It looks like off of a military jacket. But the more I investigated that, and I was given that task, I, I looked through books that just had pages of pictures of military buttons because someone has done this research and I couldn't find a match. I was totally confounded. So I contacted a friend of mine, an archaeologist, who's very well versed in this era, on this kind of material, and I told him this is made of lead. I told him what percentage of lead it was. He said, you know, this looks like a replica to me. And so that, that gave us at least some idea of what we were looking at, of uh, this confusing artifact. Uh, it seemed to date to more modern period, uh, a time period during the, the 50s and 60s when military, replica military jackets were popular. And we also had an oral history that one of the uh, managers of the property liked to wear just that type of, of jacket. So um, something that we thought might support uh, the military actions there turned out not to be. 
um, and other things were more modern, and we just had a couple of items. We had a we also had a mystery container that looked maybe like it was, it looked about the size of a sardine can, but of course it was terribly rusted, and we we really couldn't pin it down beyond that. Dr. Snap and her team collected 260 artifacts on site, some of which seemed to support the idea that this was the location of Fort Shackelford. Dr. Snap was just about to publish her findings. Then there was a twist in the story. There is a twist. Um, one of the Tribal Historic Preservation Office um, staffers was um, having lunch at a local restaurant, and he started talking to one of the tribal Seminole tribal elders uh, about this project and about this property. And at the time, we did know that metal detecting had taken place on, on the property in around the 70s. And so we were aware of that, but what we weren't aware of that the elder shared was that the site was actually salted or uh, pieces of metal were put out um, for those people to find, um, generally so that they would have a good time and they would enjoy their time out on the reservation. Uh, they would spend a little money to have the opportunity to do this. They would find some things and, and have a good time. So that gave us uh, a completely different perspective on what we were finding. And it might explain some of the confusing items that we, we have found. So there could still well, in our data, um, be artifacts that are genuine to the fort. And then we might have a mixture of things that are, are not genuinely re related to that, but actually related to this much later activity of um, entertaining a local metal detecting club. Dr. Snap says there is still hope of definitively finding Fort Shackelford. Explorations might begin on opposite sides of the one remaining 1943 marker. Despite the lack of a firm conclusion to the search for Fort Shackelford, Dr. Snap says that this work led to exciting collaborations between outside archaeologists and the Seminole tribe. It really brought home to me this idea of indigenous archaeology that the groups, these living cultures, have a lot to share about their own heritage. Of course, the story is about them and about their heritage, and that the collaborating on it is how you come to the full story. And having only half of the story is very confusing, and you can come to the wrong conclusion very easily, and having more of it, of course, can give you a fuller picture, and maybe a more accurate picture. Dr. Annette Snap is operations manager at the Atatiki Seminole Indian Museum and an archaeologist. She will be discussing Fort Shackelford for the Florida Historical Society Archaeological Institute at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science, Friday, March 20th at 7 p.m. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. The 2015 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium will be held May 22nd through 24th at the Renaissance World Golf Village Resort in St. Augustine. The event features more than 90 presenters on Florida history topics, tours of historic sites, and much more. This year's theme is Subjects, Citizens, and Civil Rights, 450 Years of Florida History. Registration information is online at myfloridahistory.org. Drift into the night 
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, in the 19th century, salvaging shipwrecks was a common practice in the Florida Keys. Yeah, that's right. And this is one of those interestingly peculiar uh, Florida professions that uh, really hit its uh, stride in the mid-19th century during the, the golden age of, of sail along Florida's southern coast, specifically along the Florida Keys. Uh, and essentially a wrecker was an uh, individual, probably a sailor, uh, who had some experience in, in sailing or working at sea. Uh, and they would, uh, these groups of men would, would uh, form a, a crew, get together on a ship, usually launch from either Key West or Havana, Cuba, somewhere, somewhere close by, and they would anchor offshore of the reef systems along the Florida Keys, usually along the upper keys, and essentially wait for a large commercial ship to wreck along the shores. They would then uh, hopefully be the first of the wreckers to arrive at this wreck. They would uh, unload as much cargo as possible, which would give the ship a little bit more buoyancy. They would then use their own ship to pull the wrecked ship off of the reef. Uh, they could then bring all of the supplies that they removed from the ship's cargo originally to a court in Key West and would be uh, eligible for at least uh, a partial sum of that cargo. So they were essentially taking a prize uh, for work that uh, um, really should have been done. I mean, the, the priority, as most records would, would tell you, would be to save the, the lives of the sailors who were languishing on the, on the reefs. Uh, but in, uh, in actuality, there was quite a bit of money that could be made. In fact, in, uh, in Key West and along the Florida Keys in the mid-19th century, this was the most lucrative job you could find. So if you were unable to get a commission or, or had just uh, uh, finished your duty with a, a Navy, not necessarily the U.S. Navy. There are a number of uh, foreigners who made their way down to South Florida. You could get onto one of these wrecking crews and, and uh, possibly make a, a large sum of money uh, with your share of the earnings if you could, uh, if you were lucky enough to, to uh, sit and wait for a, um, uh, for a wreck to occur. Well, you have here a novel from the late 1800s that looks at what the life of a wrecker was like. Yeah, that's right. And uh, this is a really great uh, novelized version of what life would have been like uh, in 1839, from about 1839 to 1842. And it follows a young man, a character by the name of Fred Ransom. And Fred Ransom uh, is from a wealthy family in New York. He uh, somehow... Uh, uh, finds himself on a ship uh, accidentally. On, he's only 15 years old, but he finds his way on the ship from New York Harbor, sailing south to Havana, uh, is stuck in Havana. And, and in order to get back to New York, he has to get a job as a wrecker on one of these ships uh, and spends a few years uh, um, sailing along the Florida Keys, uh, uh, engaged in this practice. And while he's down there, he uh, uh, keeps track of, of his uh, adventures. And uh, as the book uh, is, is written, he's, he's telling it as from the perspective of, of an old man. So here he is decades later, uh, recounting his life as a 15-year-old boy who was uh, engaged in the wrecking trade. Uh, and it's, um, I say it's a novel, but uh, the author of the book, a gentleman by the name of Richard uh, Mead, uh, 
uh, Beish. He's written a, a number of books, and he's more famous for his nonfiction. But uh, the the book that he's writing here, which is entitled The Young Wrecker of the Florida Reef, uh, really delves into the details of what life was like, uh, not only as a wrecker, but also uh, living along the, uh, the Florida Keys. In fact, um, we have a passage here where he's describing and defining what a conch is. And a conch, uh, as most Floridians or those who live down in South Florida, will define as anyone who's native to Key West. But in this passage, he describes what a conch is. He says, quote, The conchs inhabit one portion of the island. Their quarter is called Conch Town. They were originally Bahamians who settled in Key West and pursued wrecking for a livelihood. But whether a man is a native Bahamian, a resident in Key West, or whether he is born in Key West, seems to make no difference. He is known here as a conch. So he's uh, describing that there is some evidence of, of Bahamian nationality or origin, but really anybody living in this area, and mainly those involved in the wrecking industry, would be considered a conch living in, in Key West. Now, this is a novel, but is it a reasonably accurate account of a Florida wrecker's life? Absolutely, and most scholars and literary scholars would agree that this is a, uh, a really accurate account, and, and the author went to uh, great pains to detail, uh, again, not only what life was like working as a wrecker and salvaging these wrecks, um, but also details many of the uh, occurrences that are, are happening uh, during that time period. In fact, he describes a wrecker as being uh, uh, not a pirate, uh, but but of a profession very much uh, different than that. Um, but in reality, and, and most historians will look at it, that the wreckers really were acting on the border of piracy. Uh, even though in 1823 the, the territorial legislature in, in Florida had passed uh, specific wrecking laws, and by 1828 they had set up a Supreme Court in Key West, uh, there was quite a bit of collusion that occurred between uh, ship owners, uh, captains, and crews. Uh, there was a lot of bribery that occurred within the courts in this small community in Key West. Uh, and, and just the, the uh, uh, idea that a disaster can be used for profit, you know, nowadays we would, um, you know, certainly look down upon. But at the time, this was a way to, uh, to make a living. And it's a, it's a fascinating read. Uh, the book is actually still in print, and I encourage anyone interested to, to pick up a copy. It's a, um, a really, uh, it's written in, in the romantic 19th century style, but it's a, a really fascinating tale of how this young character uh, gets involved in, in a, uh, like I said, a very peculiar uh, job that uh, we find really only in, in this part of Florida. Thanks a lot, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Ponce de Leon was governor of Puerto Rico before coming to Florida in 1513. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has this look at Puerto Rican immigration. There has been an explosion in terms of Puerto Rican immigration to central Florida beginning really in the early 1980s. There was a, a recession that hit the island pretty bad. Unemployment rose dramatically. And beginning at that time, we've had a constant flow of Puerto Ricans to the region, particularly attracted to Orlando. And at this point, there are perhaps almost 250,000 Puerto Ricans in central Florida alone, which is a, a very interesting phenomenon. 
That was Dr. Luis Martinez-Fernandez from the University of Central Florida telling me about Puerto Rican migration to Central Florida. Puerto Ricans have been coming to the United States for over 100 years. Dr. Martinez-Fernandez tells me about this early migration. It's, it's important to keep in mind that there has been Puerto Rican immigration to the United States going back to actually World War I when workers were needed. Um, that continued. It really peaked at a time in which Puerto Rico was becoming industrialized, and that was in the late 40s throughout the 50s, and that was the peak of emigration. The government of Puerto Rico was involved in promoting that emigration. The thinking was the fewer mouths we have to feed, the better the economy will be, and that created huge nuclei of Puerto Ricans in places like New York, Hartford, Chicago, and elsewhere. Uh, some to Miami, but at that time Central Florida was was almost not even in the map for Puerto Ricans. The migration of Puerto Ricans to Central Florida is a recent phenomenon. Dr. Martinez Fernandez tells me about the characteristics of that migration. Puerto Rican migration into Central Florida has been dramatic, it has been huge. There is perhaps, uh, there are perhaps 250,000 Puerto Ricans who live in Central Florida. It has become a mecca. It has displaced New York and other traditional entry points for the Puerto Ricans. Actually, Puerto Ricans are not just coming from the island. They're coming from places like Chicago and New York, where the, and they're resettling here. So it has become the mecca. It has also received the attention, uh, particularly of politicians who want the Puerto Rican support. Um, the various institutions ha are catering to the Puerto Rican population. You see, for example, that Publix supermarket now has not just an aisle for Puerto Rican foods, but they created a new supermarket called Sabor, which is really geared towards the Puerto Rican tastes and culture. If you are careful, you can see the icons and images important to Puerto Ricans throughout Central Florida. Here, Dr. Martinez Fernandez first explains to me about the importance of the La Garita as a symbol to Puerto Ricans throughout Central Florida. It is one of the icons of Puerto Rican culture and society. There's another one which sort of, um, I think is more widely used, which is the coqui, which is a tiny frog that is indigenous to Puerto Rico and makes a very uh, particular sound. That is another icon. I would say that the Garita del Diablo, the sentry box, would be similar to, of course, a, a, a different, uh, in, in a different size, uh, to the Eiffel Tower for the French. Uh, the Garita del Diablo is also emblematic because it's beautiful. It's a, it's a beautiful example of Spanish military construction. And it is uh, something that immigrants, or emigrants I should say, they want to hold on to these images. It's, it's part of the identity. It's something that is shared by the community. Um, sometimes people use flags for that purpose, but sometimes they use icons. So every Puerto Rican drives by that building, sees that sentry box, and everybody knows that. 
It is Puerto Rican, and it is a welcoming place. That was Dr. Luis Martinez-Fernandez. I interviewed him and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. You can find it on iTunes. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.